Good. Uh, well, good afternoon, everyone. Good to see you all. Well done for making it out despite the uh, snowy weather. <laughs> um, do turn with me to the Book of Mark, chapter finishing off, chapter fifteen, going to chapter sixteen. Before I start, let me just uh, plug these again. These are the Christmas card invites that we've got printed. There's a bundle on the back. You can take a bundle. There's some envelopes if you want to write a little message to your neighbours and secretaries and doors. Uh, so let me encourage you to make the most of those. We've got 750, I think, because we were hoping to give them away on Friday night, but that didn't happen. So take lots. Uh, we might try and um, go along to the Christmas market or something and give out some there. Uh, but yeah, uh, please use them, please make the most of them. Uh, and hopefully they will be good for inviting people to success this Christmas. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Loving Father, we do thank you for just your grace to us, how you are with us as we meet together. Thank you that we, we have a warm building to meet in. Thank you that we can come and look at your words and think about what it means for us. I pray that you'd speak to us this evening as we look at your word. Please challenge us and encourage us. Please be at work in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to begin by reading you a first time I read an article on the Open Doors website. If you haven't heard of Open Doors, they're a charity that support the Persecuted Church. It's just there at the bottom. It says, A Christian has been killed and at least 60 kidnapped after a group of bandits stormed the church in Kaduna State, Nigeria, last Sunday, 31st of October. Now, sadly, attacks like this have been increasingly common uh, in Nigeria recently and it's a horrible reality. It's, it's a horrible situation for Christians living there, never quite knowing what is coming. And it got me thinking, well, how do they carry on? What, what keeps them going as believers, as Christians, against all this horrible opposition? What, what helps them persevere? I guess we could ask that in lots of places, lots of places in the world where people are, are persecuted and suffering for their faith. Even in the UK, we might well face persecution and trial and difficulty for what we believe. It may not be such a physical threat, it can be hatred and opposition, but it happens. People are experiencing that even today. So where do we go? Where do we turn when we're facing situations like that? What, what hope have we got? And of course, I guess the Sunday school answer is Jesus. And we kind of know that, don't we? But, but we're looking at a passage today that's going to hopefully explain why, why it's such good news that, that we can come to Christ. So we're coming to the end of Mark's Gospel. Uh, I'm sad that I'm not going to be able to go through more of it with you. I've kind of arrived just for the ending, really. Obviously, it's a, it's a great blessing to preach through this, uh, uh, even the, the, the ending. Uh, if you were here last week, Bob, uh, Bob Telford took us through uh, the crucifixion story. And he reflected on the stark horror of the cross as the Messiah, as Jesus, the King of the Jews, was killed, as he was forsaken by his father. And at the end, uh, we, we finished at verse 39. I don't know if you, you, you um, if, if we talked about this before, probably did at some point in their series. One of the big questions that Mark's Gospel is trying to answer is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we get an answer in verse 39. Have a look just uh, down uh, at the text. 
when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. So as Jesus died, it's like his identity was being revealed, even to the people in charge of killing him. Everything about his death revealed who he was, revealed what he had come to do. So Jesus dies. But where are his disciples? Where are his twelve disciples through all of this? Remember, we looked at a few weeks back at when they fled in the garden as Jesus was arrested. They haven't really been mentioned since. Even the Apostle Peter denied Jesus uh, in that courtyard, was left in tears, and that's kind of the last thing we, we see of him. Jesus was left to go through all of this alone. So are they going to make a reappearance? What is going to happen? We need to look at the Bible and find out. Let's look through the end of Mark's Gospel. Let's think about what it has to say to us. My first heading is this. Jesus really was dead. Jesus really was dead. Let's read verse 14. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So I said, well, where are his disciples? And actually, we do see some of them right here. Sure, the, the twelve men that we know as the disciples, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the, the ones that we maybe think of when we hear that word, they were scattered. But actually, Jesus has far more than twelve disciples, twelve followers, and we have a significant group of faithful women who have been following Jesus, the watching on all that's been happening. And it uses the language of discipleship, so they've been following him. It doesn't just mean following down the road, it means they've been listening, they've been taking on board what he's been teaching. They are his disciples. And actually that would have been really shocking in the culture at the time. Uh, it would not have been a usual thing to have female disciples uh, if you were you know, a teacher of some sort. It, that's, that was the reality of the culture at the time. Um, but they wouldn't have been entrusted in the same way. Now that, that just doesn't sound good, does it? I don't know, just imagine if that was the case at, at school or at work, if actually only blokes were believed. That would be crazy, wouldn't it? Like, just, especially in, in light of the kind of Me Too movement, it would be shocking if that was the case, if, if women were kind of just disregarded. And yeah, that's maybe putting it too simply, that's not quite as simple as it was in the New Testament times. But the reality was that in general, women were not given the same rights, they were not given the same respect. They were treated with suspicion if they gave testimony. So it's amazing, isn't it, that the Bible says that these, these women are the ones who, who, were, who saw it all. They were the eyewitnesses. They saw what happened to Jesus. They didn't abandon him. They see everything that happens. I think it, it's encouraging, isn't it? It reflects on the, the countercultural message of Jesus. That actually both men and women, from all sorts of walks of life, from, from everywhere, can be given significance and value and purpose. It's good to see these, these women being recorded and, uh, and being celebrated, I guess, for their faithful caring uh, and their following of Jesus. Something we should want to celebrate today too. I know I'm really grateful for the faithful women that, that I know. Uh, <coughs> in then in verse 42 we meet Another uh, faithful disciple, Joseph of Arimathea. He, now, he was a member of the council that condemned Jesus to death. So, 
Obviously, they weren't all against him, but he was obviously in the minority completely. He, he, he was, I don't know whether he spoke up or not, but he was, you know, to be in that room, can you imagine all the hatred and stand up for Jesus? But he wasn't against him. He, he was clearly sympathetic to Jesus and his message. And it says he went boldly to Pilate. He went boldly. Now, it would really be a bold choice, it would be a risky thing to, to go to the, the, the Roman ruler uh, and associate with this common criminal. Especially if you're one of the council that, that hated him so much. What would his, you know, what would his associates think of him? But he knew that actually the law required that Jesus should be buried before nightfall. And he'd seen enough to know that Jesus was worth associating with. It's a challenge, isn't it? There's bound to be times where we too need to step up and boldly step out in faith and stand up for Jesus. But we're not quite sure what effect it's going to have on our lives, on those around us. But Pilate is surprised to see that, verse 44, surprised to hear that he was already dead. Normally it took longer for someone to die on a cross. It's a horrible, horrible way to die. We read last week, didn't we? Bob talked about the flogging he received, the brutal nature of it. He was he was weakened. It's no wonder he died more quickly than most, which is not that fast. But it's kind of it's all laid out there. It's kind of really press home the point that Jesus really is dead. You see that? He, he, gets, he summons the centurion and says, Look, is it true? Is it, is, has Jesus died already? And now the centurion, it was his job to make sure that Jesus was dead. He was going to make sure it happened. And that's what he does. He, he, he explains what's happened. So Joseph takes the body. He does what needs to be done. Which means he would have washed it and prepared it for burial, wrapping it in the linen, placing it in the tomb, and then rolling this huge stone in front of it against the entrance. Again, verse 47, we see that, that, that Mary and Mary saw where he was laid. They, they're still following him. They're still watching what's happened. No doubt kind of consumed by the grief of all that's happened, and yet their faith. They're these vitally important witnesses to, to report all that they see. But that's why I put this verse heading, Jesus really was dead, because that, that's the focus that Mark gives us. He stresses that this is the reality. Jesus was definitely dead. People saw it. People could testify to that reality. And that speaks against the argument that, that some were saying at the time that, oh, maybe they just took Jesus off the cross before he died, and then he went off and recovered, and, and then, you know, he was seen again afterwards. Mark's buried him, and Jesus died. However unlikely that would be, I mean, his injuries were severe. But no, lots of people saw Jesus die. And not just die, they saw him laying in a tomb. They saw his corpse in a tomb with a stone all across the entrance. It's a permanent thing. They knew what happens. It's quite stark, isn't it? We mustn't gloss over the kind of familiar passage and we need to just reflect on the reality that Jesus really died. The awful pain that his followers felt, the separation, the confusion, the agony as they watched it all before their eyes. 
thinking, well, what, what's going to happen now? I'm glad that Mark doesn't gloss over these details because it reminds us too just how awful death is to us. It causes each one of us horrible grief and pain when we face the reality of it in our lives, when it, when it comes close. We get a sense inside of us, don't we? We get a sense in our hearts that there's something wrong with it. This isn't the way it should be when we lose someone we love. One of my favourite Christian singer-songwriters is a guy called Andrew Peterson. I'm going to introduce you to one of his songs next week. But one of his recent songs is called Is He Worthy? And it's a kind of a, a liturgy song. It's like he, he sings questions and responses. But the first question is this. Do you feel the world is broken? And the response is, we do. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. And that's, that is, that's so true, isn't it? When we look at the world around us, it feels broken. It, it doesn't feel right. It feels unnatural that we should suffer such pain when we're faced with death like this. And yet it feels so permanent, so inescapable. So in the midst of a broken world filled with this pain, filled with this difficulty, where's the hope? Where's the hope for us? Well, we see in, the, in chapter 16 that Jesus really is alive. Jesus really is alive. The day after Jesus died was the Sabbath, the day of rest where, where nothing was allowed to happen. No shops, no work, no nothing. But despite this, you can see Tony Mary and the, these women are desperate to do what they could to serve Jesus, even though he was dead. So as soon as they could, straight after the Sabbath, then they rush and they buy spices and they head to the tomb. It's a pretty grim reality that in a very hot country, they needed these extra spices to basically cover the smell of the, the body, the decaying body. It's horrible. They, they, they were tired, they were grief-stricken, but they were doing what they could. They realised on the way that, actually, who's going to roll the stone away? We haven't thought about this. Who, who's, who's going to be able to, to, to let us in? And what this shows us is that they're not expecting anything out of the ordinary. They know that Jesus is dead. They're incredibly sad about this. They want to do what they can. They're not expecting to find anything strange, anything unusual. But let's see what happens. Verse 4. When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Wow! What, what an amazing moment this must have been. The large stone just rolled out of the way already. And I say, they, they rush in and they look in and they see this, this, this young man in, in white. I don't know why Mark doesn't use the, the word for angel. We know from the other Gospels it was an angel. And we can kind of get that impression, even though Mark doesn't use the word, because of their reaction. They're alarmed. They're, they're kind of fearful. And whenever you see people meeting angels in the Bible, that's often their reaction. They often have that, that kind of alarmed reaction. And often the first word said to them, Mark, don't be afraid, don't be alarmed, which is what happens here. The angel says, he is risen. Here's what we need to do. He's not here. It's a staggering thing, isn't it? What do you mean he's not here? We saw him die, we saw him lay there. He's not here. He is risen. 
He's no longer in a tomb because he is alive. Jesus was alive again. This is unheard of. I think before or since, without, you know, just the idea that he was dead, he was in the grave, he was gone. But death could not hold him. He rose again. This new creation, victorious over sin, victorious over death. I guess in some sense it shouldn't surprise us because it's, it's exactly what Jesus promised. In, in Mark 14, all the way through the gospel, but in Mark 14 it says, After I have risen, I will go ahead and you to Galilee. Now, of course, they don't quite understand what that means. He promises, I will rise. And of course, he does. It's proof that, that all of his promises are good and true and trustworthy. There's no need to doubt, there's no need to, 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 to not trust anything that, that he has said, anything that he's done. And although we don't get the disciples in this passage, there's a glimmer of hope for them, isn't there? They will see Jesus again. There will be grace and forgiveness. There will be a job for them to do. Peter is, is mentioned by name. It's as if he said, look, Peter needs to be restored. Peter needs to be forgiven. And, and lifted up so he can lead the church. That restoration is coming. But we don't get any of that in the text. We look at verse 8. This, we get a very strange ending. Look at verse 8 with me. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now that is a strange, oh, sorry, that is a strange ending, isn't it? That is a really strange ending. It's worth explaining briefly if, you, if you're looking, if you've got it in your, your Bible, why we haven't read the other verses at the end of Mark's Gospel, verses uh, 9 through to 20. In my Bible, there's a little note that says the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20. And basically, it's very unlikely they were part, they were originally part of Mark's Gospel. And the earliest surviving copies that we've got, uh, they're just not there. And actually, you kind of you get that, don't you? If you read through them, you'll see that they're, they're not in the same style. They seem to be written by someone different. And there's a few different endings, actually, that someone's kind of stitched on to the end of verse 8. There's nothing particularly heretical, but it doesn't feel right to preach through them when we're fairly sure they're not actually part of God's words. It's, it's been compiled from the other Gospels, stories from the Book of Acts. It's as if someone said, that, actually, this is a weird way to end the Gospel. I should write something and stick it on so that actually people kind of understand what's, what's happening. And you can kind of understand it, can't you? You can kind of think, well, I think I would want to do that because it finishes so suddenly, so such a strange way to end. Actually, some of the commentators say, well, because it's so strange, clearly there was a, an original ending that maybe it was never completed, or maybe it was lost somehow through the centuries. Others say, well, actually, no, this is the ending that Mark wrote. This is how he left it intentionally. And I've been reading, I've been researching, thinking about it this week. And to be honest, there's good arguments on both sides of those, those debates. I perhaps lean towards the second one where I think this is how Mark intended it. But let's, let's not get bogged down in the arguments, because what we need to be sure about is actually, this is the way that God intended for us to be able to read it, for it to be passed on to us. So we need to think about this, we need to think about what we need to make of this. The first question I had was, well, what happened? Because it doesn't seem to line up with the other gospel accounts. If they didn't say anything to anyone, then how did the disciples find out? What, what happens? 
it's possible, I guess, that uh, maybe you know, within that group of women, some of them went away and kept silent, and, and others didn't. Or maybe they just they were just so shocked they kept quiet for a short time, and then went off and shared it with the disciples. It's not. I don't think it's a major concern in terms of trying to align it with the other gospel accounts. But it would be easy for them to go, well, what happened? Okay, let's go look at Matthew, let's go look at John and Luke, and find out what happens. Fill in the gaps. We're here to look at Mark's gospel tonight. We're here to think about why it ends like this. And I think the, the answer lies in the audience that Mark is writing to. He, he's likely writing to Gentile believers in the Roman Empire. Now these believers would have been facing really serious persecution. For their faith. Death, beatings, oppression from those around them. And actually, if you think about that, that, that helps us understand really the whole of Mark's gospel, why he, he, he structures things uh, and records things like he does. I'm sure uh, as you were going through the book, it's kind of spoke about the kind of first eight chapters and the, the second eight. It's kind of a common way to divide it. It's like the first eight are all about Jesus' identity, who he is. And then the second half is all about why Jesus came, what he came to do, kind of the suffering servants. And at that transition point, there's a key passage at the end of chapter 8. Let's just, let's just remind ourselves of it. We've got a Bible turn to chapter 8 with me. This is after that Peter declares Jesus is the Messiah, in verse 29. Predicts, you know, that, that he will suffer many things, that he will be killed, that he will rise again. And then verse 34 says he says this. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world? yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me, my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is Jesus calling for a radical sacrifice from those who follow him. Saying that you need to boldly stand for you need to not be ashamed of me, in front of others, things like Joseph, Women following, you need to be ready to lose your life for the sake of Jesus, preparing them for hardship. He does the same in chapter 13. We went through that a few weeks back. It, it talks about what this might actually look like. And if you go there, you see things like you might be arrested, you might be flogged, you might be betrayed by your family, you might be hated by everyone around you. It sounds incredibly familiar, doesn't it? Because we've just been through the, the account of. Jesus' crucifixion, and these are all the things that happened to him too. Mark saying that actually following Jesus is going to be really, really hard. I think that's why he focuses so much on the, the trial and the crucifixion and the burial. It's kind of preparing them to see that if we're following Jesus, it, it, it's following the way of the cross. And maybe that just starts to make a bit of sense about why there's no clear ending. Why there's no obvious kind of note of real victory. Because actually in the here and now, for the early readers and listeners of Mark, even today, 
Sometimes things will be unclear. Sometimes things will be confusing. Sometimes it will feel like we don't have the victory because of the suffering and the persecution we face. And it's almost as if Mark leaps it down and says, well, what are you going to do with this? Jesus is alive. Will you keep silence or will you take up your cross and will you follow him? Whatever that means, whatever that looks like. It's a good question, isn't it? Will you take up your cross? Will you take up your cross? I think it's a really good question for us to ask ourselves this evening. Following Jesus is, is really hard. Sometimes we are called to, to lay down our lives for the sake of Jesus and for others. I guess the question is, what does that look like for us today in Kenilworth? And I'm not 100% sure. I've only been here a month. I'd love to hear from you. What do you think? What does it mean to take up your cross and follow Christ? I'd love to hear if you've got some sharp ideas. But let me suggest a few things I think we need to be prepared uh, for, that it might be for us. It means being prepared to stand up for Jesus in the places that he's put us. Whether it's school, work, in our neighbourhoods, our friends, our families. Even if it means losing those friends. Even if it means losing our status and our security. It means not being ashamed of Jesus. It means being prepared to, to face the anger and hatred from those around us. Who, who may think we're completely intolerant and can't understand why we believe such things. It's easier, it's easier to say that than isn't it? Of course, but we need to face this anger. It's much harder when it's actually happening to us. We need God's strength. We need to ask Him to help us be prepared. There may come a time, who knows, in the future where we might face arrest and prison for what we believe. It might mean being prepared to go through a trial of, of serious illness or some other element of suffering. We spoke about the broken world, didn't we? It's a horrible thing, but it, it means we, we should expect to, to, to feel the effect of that, to suffer. And when you think, well, how do I honour Christ in those moments, at those times? How, what does it mean to do that? It means being prepared to put Jesus above everything else, to put him first. There's so many things, aren't there? We look around us, there's so many things, I know in my own heart, that we can see as, as the most important thing. Maybe it's schoolwork or, or achievements or sports or, or our families or that, that elusive promotion or our homes. There's lots of good gifts that God gives us and they're not the ultimate thing. We call them to, to, to deny ourselves, to, to let it all go because Jesus is worth more. There's a few suggestions but I guess the, the, the message of Mark is that we should expect it to be hard in this life, if we're going to follow Jesus, just like it was in the early church. But it would be wrong to leave it there a minute, because we, the question I started was, what, what keeps them going? What can keep us going? What kept them going there in the early church too? And I think it's right now in verse 6, chapter 16. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified, he said. He has risen. He is not here. He is risen. But these three simple words that changed the world. Because we need to say, yes, will you take up your cross because he is risen? Will you take up your cross because he is risen? It means that there's no need to fear anything in this world. 
We follow a saviour who is alive. He has beaten the worst that this world has to offer. He's been through it, and he's experienced it, and he rose again, showing that he conquered it, that he reigned supreme over it, that that death and pain and the awful reality of those things, our perspective changes as we think about the one we follow, the one who came back to life. We can fully trust his promises. We can trust that he will return again. We can trust that, that we will be forgiven if we put our trust in him. We can trust his promise that, that we are part of his family. God's children forever, secure in his hands, never letting us go. When we grasp these promises, we realise that actually everything else is small in comparison. Nothing matters more, does it, than that, that, that. Knowing his grace, knowing his forgiveness, knowing that we're loved, being part of his family, it really does change us. It gives us real hope and boldness and confidence to, to stand up for Christ. I'm sure that it provides great hope for, for the Christians in Nigeria, struggling with that horrible persecution, struggling with the fear of that. No way, you know, of course it's not easy, but they can hold on to the promise that Jesus is alive, but that actually they don't need to fear anything in this life because they have eternal life of Christ. And that provides hope for us too. And I think that's the challenge as we come to the end of Mark, because we, we're left kind of with that stranger thing. Do I really believe in this? Is Jesus really worth following? Is he worth giving everything up for? There's nothing greater than, than, than taking up my cross, going after him, living for him. Because if we do, we have that great hope of eternal life. We, we, face, we face death, but, but just for a moment, eternal life awaits. What, what joy that should give us, what, what it should fill us with praise and thankfulness, and it should deepen our trust in him. It should help us hold on in the toughest moments we face. No, he's never going to let us go. He's never going to let us go. We need, his, we need his help, don't we, to, to do that. It's not our own strength. We need his help to, to, to trust him and, and keep keep faithful. Why don't we pray? We reflect on these things. Ask for his help. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth in this passage. Thank you that Jesus has risen, that he is alive. Lord, would you fill us with joy and hope because of that reality? Would you work in our hearts? Would you help us if we're experiencing doubts or confusion or if we're struggling with anything? Would you help us find hope again because you are alive? Would you help us take up our cross or whatever that looks like for each one of us? Help us be prepared to, to, to do what it takes to, to stand faithfully for you to the end, to be bold uh, and to proclaim you. We pray that you would give us the strength to do this by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.